Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we are bringing you a listener request, a three-part series on the Dorothea Puente case requested by Maddie. Now, listen, this is a really, I think, a fairly famous case, Mm -hmm. but I actually have never heard it before, so I know you've never heard it before, and if you have heard this before, I did try to work on, like, reading a a bunch of different sources so this might be like a fun uh, approach to this story i'm gonna go ahead and guarantee it's a fun approach to this story muriel always does the extra work i think you guys are in for a treat all right i think you i think you might be in for a treat yeah. as morbid as that sounds all right so this is part one no spoilers all right for anyone except maybe my goodness the uh-huh. things people could get away with before the internet this is a like 70s slash 80s story that just retains that fantastic 1800 style. That person has good handwriting, so they must be a doctor Uh kind of vibe, you know? Sure, sure. Uh, Part one's insane. Hold on to your butts. In fact, this whole story is a roller coaster. Uh, And we're going to end on part three with a big holiday surprise for all of you and for Nick who has no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> it's something I've never done on this podcast before and hopefully it won't be in bad taste. Okay. All right. But we'll but that's a spoiler alert right there, you know? It's I think this is a really fun three-part series. And if not, it'll be the last one we ever do. Oh, oh the <laughs> feedback. Okay. All right. The uh sources for this And part of what made this a really interesting uh, story to write about was the excellent book Disturbed Ground by Carla Morton. It was just really well written and very well done. I also used Puente versus Mitchell from Case Text. That was just really helpful. Uh, The Life and Deaths of Dorothea Puente by Martin Coots for Sacktown Magazine, a really excellent long form article on this case and then (laughs) i know this isn't really the way you're supposed to cite sources but i just read a thousand articles from the sacramento bee so shout out sacramento bee (laughs) circa 1979 (laughs) thank you for all your reporting (laughs) yeah thank you for your service uh hilarious all right well uh and also oh also as a surprise and this is going to be like a christmas surprise we actually don't know when these episodes are going to be released so check the feeds check patreon check the spotify exclusive feed they maybe are going to be available earlier to those subscribers you know or maybe not we actually don't know so that's another big mystery if you subscribe to our patreon you know uh uh, (laughs) you know like i was I'm sharing this to the world. I don't really care. I'm trying to like rejuvenate my Christmas spirit. Uh-huh. My therapist told me that I have to <laughs> try to connect to it uh-huh. in a better way. And part of that has been like, the only thing I've been able to connect to is just like 
do what you feel like, man. Uh-huh. And so Nick's been glomming onto that too. And so that's meant we've been a little bit like, all right, if you if we're just kind of floating through the world. And so that's meant we haven't met some of our deadlines. I'm not floating through anything. I've been going to work and being exhausted every day of You haven't been life. sleeping very well. And then and when I you just, don't sleep very well, yeah. you are the biggest grumpus in the world. No one can handle you. Well, I just have to get my act together and go to work every day, and that's been killing me. I know, so, but also right. you just didn't sleep for three days, and then you started acting insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, look. Okay, okay, okay. We got to get on with this, but first we want to shout out Jelly and Ann W for signing up for our Patreon. It's not too late, folks. Get yourself a Christmas present. Get us a Christmas present. Sign up for those Patreons. Sign up for those exclusive Spotify feeds. Unlock those exclusive episodes and give us the joy of money we also want to thank Kristen <laughs> for a beautiful five-star review on oh, apple yeah, yeah. so wonderful thank you so much so glad you found this podcast and you're giving us love we really feel that directly in our heart thank you very much all right this is a true story involving listen guys not gonna joke around here uh-huh. a lot of murder in oh, this one okay a lot of murder, uh-huh. violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick, they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider, really please consider listening to a different podcast. Yeah. And if also just consider yourself warned in general. So just turn us off. You know what I mean? <laughs> but don't actually don't. I mean, we say that, but what we really mean is please listen, become addicted to our show. Uh, rate and review us, follow us, and sign up for our Patreon. But really, if you don't like jer- <laughs> joking or murder, don't listen to this podcast. Yeah, also, who knows about the language? Some F-bombs might come out. Foul language might arise. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay! Let's get started. On Monday, November 7th, 1988, a street counselor working with the Volunteers of America in Sacramento, California, called the police to report a missing person. Judy Moise worked with the vulnerable people day in and day out, people with severe addiction issues, chronic illnesses, people dealing with poverty and homelessness who unfortunately disappeared fairly often. Mm. But this time, though, There had been this weird series of events, right? Red flags, bizarre phone calls, rumors surrounding the boarding house where her client had been living, and this random supposed trip to Mexico. So Judy wanted a welfare check. A Sacramento police officer pulled up to the boarding house in question, a sweet blue and white two-story Victorian house at 1426 F Street a few hours later that morning. From the outside, you could see the house had a lived-in charm, a sprawling back and side yard with vegetable gardens and flowers, uh, a small Catholic shrine out front, a few remnants of Halloween decorations, just super cute. Up a flight of white stairs was Dorothy Puente's flat. Dorothy was a classic little old lady, five foot two, white hair gathered neatly on top of her head, a little floral print dress, just very tidy and put together. And her apartment was the same, little glass figurines everywhere, doilies, lace stuff, paintings of Jesus in different poses, 
plastered all over the walls. And one of the main features in the parlor was this overstuffed bookcase for her tenants to borrow from and expand their horizons. Just very super homey. Mm-hmm. Also, the officer clocked the delicious smells coming from the kitchen. Things bubbling on the stove. Dorothea was getting a head start on the evening dinner for the house. So the chat went more or less like the officer expected. Dorothea Puente explained that this man in question, Bert Montoya, had left with his family the previous day. So it was Monday and he had left on Sunday. You're telling me this little old lady's killing these people. Come on, <laughs> Nick, Muriel. you gotta pay attention to what you I'm talking about. You just said it's a, it's a whole name of this case is about her, and she's all like, oh, what, Mr. Officer? Oh, would you like to borrow a book? A Wrinkle in Time is a very good classic one. Maybe you forgot it from your elementary days. So it was fairly normal for her boarders to come and go like that. She couldn't understand why Judy Moist was so confused. Jorothea had been doing this for a really long time. She was known for you know, taking more of the hard luck cases, alcoholics, and the severely mentally ill. And she was used to people leaving abruptly. So, you know, mm-hmm. maybe she's Judy's just burning out, right? She's like, I don't know why she's acting like this is such a big deal. We sure. all work with the same people. Okay. So Dorothea took the officer downstairs to speak with one of her tenants who was home the day prior when Bert moved out. And John Sharp, one of her tenants, corroborated everything Dorothy said plainly into the letter. You know, Dorothea went to church like she always did on Sunday morning. And while she was gone, a man showed up with a red pickup truck and helped Bert Montoya move his stuff out. You know, Dorothea caught him just at the end to say goodbye. And that was that was fairly simple. Satisfied, the officer walked Dorothea Puente back upstairs and then came downstairs to once again thank John Sharp, shake his hand on his way out. And when he did, John Sharp jammed an old envelope into the officer's hand. So this guy's scared of Dorothea too? She's out here killing everyone. And on the back, John Sharp had scratched out a note. Uh Uh-huh. And it read, she wants me to lie to you. Mm. Four days later, on November 11th, after a ton of Karen-esque pushing from <laughs> Judy Moyes, investigators... It's not Karen if it's freaking... Uh, what's I know, it called? I know, I know. What's the word? Justified, right? I know, Isn't I know. I the just whole thing about okay. Karen being unjustified? <laughs> no. Anyways. But to them, they felt it was unjustified. Uh-huh. She's pushing, pushing. They're not calling her back. Uh She's pushing, pushing, pushing. Investigators found themselves reluctantly tearing up Dorothea Puente's garden on a cold, gray, windy Sacramento morning. Their meeting with Dorothea's paranoid tenant, John Sharp, didn't actually give them anything concrete he had suspicions and these tall tales but absolutely no evidence bodies in the backyard and investigators felt the same thing about judy moist she had hunches and rumors and some sort of suspicions interact like suspicious interactions with dorothea Mm -hmm. but nothing concrete that could warrant any legal proceeding against dorothea puente but bert was missing no one could get in contact with him despite these stories right yeah and at the very least in running a boarding house Dorothea was actually in violation of her parole 
from a prior conviction years ago. Of? So in that violation, Uh they had enough to come in, ruffle her feathers, and maybe come and take a look around the house. So detectives working Bert's missing persons case showed up to the boarding house November 11th, 1988, with no warrant. They brought along Dorothea's parole officer to be like bad cop, right? Mm -hmm. And then a few other officers to help search the property in case she gave them permission to look around. And Dorothea was an open book, super relaxed, calm, easy. She gave them full reign of the place, allowed them to search the house, offered everyone candy, gave them full permission to invade her garden. She had nothing to hide. Now, based on aspects of John Sharp's story... They decided to dig around out back to see if they could find any evidence in the disappearance of Bert Montoya. And now on this cold, windy morning, detectives were feeling crunchy, wrecking this little old lady's beautiful garden based on rumors and a hunch. And after digging three large holes, they were feeling sort of stupid There was no evidence of anything nefarious except for these well-kept tomato plants. And it was dawning on them that this whole thing was looking like a wild goose chase. And then on the fourth hole, they hit a big old pocket of powdery lime Mm. mixed in the dirt. And in that pocket of lime and dirt, investigators found a human leg bone wrapped in cloth. Come on, Dorothea. And that's going into the soil, and then you're making everyone's delicious little bolognese, and then you're trying to then you try to feed people candy with the pears that come from the trees from the all your dead people. All right. So then, when they pulled out the bone, Dorothea clapped her round cheeks and she shouted, <laughs> "Oh my lord!" And investigators called for backup. <laughs> and without even speaking, yeah, they all already knew. Yeah. The shoe and the foot attached to the leg bone was too small to belong to a man and too decomposed to belong to Bert Montoya, who had only disappeared a few weeks prior. Uh So who the heck did they just dig (laughs) up? (laughs) So that night... Investigators installed floodlights and plastic tarps over the yard. And in the morning on November 12th, they brought in heavy machinery to excavate the body and also to break through a nearby concrete slab. They thought the way that Dorothea's yard was set up is uh-huh. it was like really beautiful, but it was odd. Like there were flower beds and lots of like decorative stuff, like a gazebo and a shed and all these I things. I love yards like that. And then also they yeah. were just like sla- like random slabs of concrete that she said like that had trees kind of poking out of them Mm -hmm. so they were built around bushes and trees she said were kept poured to keep the weeds down because she was too old to weed anymore Mm -hmm. so there were places where there would have normally been grass that were like kind of find a bunch of neighborhood children buried in there with little (laughs) tiny shoes all right so around 8 30 a.m Dorothea came out of her bedroom dressed to the nines. She had a pink dress, a red coat, and purple pumps. And her nerves were just totally shot. She needed a break from all the chaos. There was tons of press outside. And she wanted permission to go with one of her boarders to the Clarion Hotel for a cup of coffee. And that was like the nicest place in Mm -hmm. the neighborhood, right? And so she was all dressed up to go to this fancy 
hotel, right? Now, here's the thing. At this point, Dorothea was not under arrest. There wasn't really any evidence connecting her to this unidentified body in the backyard. And her cooperation with the investigation was really crucial. Plus, she had a pot of soup on the stove and she was 70. She wasn't going anywhere, right? Uh-huh. So detectives agreed to, to to keep an eye on the soup on the stove, make sure it didn't boil over. <laughs> and then they escorted her down the stairs under the police tape and through the crowd of press. 20 minutes after she left, the backhoe broke through a concrete slab in the back, revealing a second body. Also, by the way, not Bert Montoya. Uh-huh. Okay, all right. And when investigators went to find Dorothea at the Clarion Hotel, she was long gone. Miss Puente was in a bar in West Sacramento getting trashed on vodka and orange juice, about to hightail it to Stockton, California. <laughs> oh, Miro needs to take a sip of her water. She just landed that. That was like a... Freaking Simone Biles triple backflip. Perfect landing. Ah, uh, Dorothea Puente. <laughs> She's going back in, folks. Okay, Miro. So there are a few versions of this hobgoblin, depending on where you look. <laughs> According to her probation records, uh-huh. Dorothea was the youngest of 18 children. Damn. Born to a Mexican-American migrant farming couple and started in hard labor at the age of eight. As life unfolded, she ended up being the only surviving sibling of 14 to continue living in the U.S. and fell to a life of crime in a desperate move to support her family in Mexico. Uh But even with that yoke around her neck, she managed to become a well-known philanthropist in Sacramento, particularly in the Mexican-American community. Now. According to official state records, Dorothea Puente was born Dorothea Helen Gray and was straight up white, born in Redlands, California. <laughs> so that's the actual, okay. that's the real okay, thing. Okay. And actually, right. uh-huh. it turns out her real life story is just Shakespearean levels of horrific. That type of depression era dust bowl story that uh-huh. Feels like it just should be made up. Uh-huh. You know, Dorothea was sixth of seven children born to Jesse James and Trudy Mae Gray in 1929. Her dad was like this handsome, well built, healthy guy until he was poisoned with mustard gas while serving in World War One. Mm. So he spent the rest of his life chronically ill on and off bed rest. So rough. The family had a baby pretty much every year in the decade leading up to the Great Depression. Oh. Then the Depression hit and Jesse James went from earning about $1,500 a year as a farmer to something like $180 uh-huh. a year annually. So like they had this huge family and then made like no a tenth money. of what they were making yeah. before. And then he caught tuberculosis, which was basically a death sentence for him. And while he was going through all of this, Trudy May, the mom of the family, developed a really severe alcoholism, became really violent. And the state had to step in several times, but they never removed the children because back then that wasn't really the practice. So Dorothea's dad died when she was eight uh, from complications of tuberculosis. Her mom sent the kids to an orphanage 
And then her mom died in a motorcycle accident the next year, just a couple days after Christmas when Dorothea was nine. And then finally, the last version of Dorothea, according to later court records, psychological examinations and corroborated family history was the flesh on the bones of her life story. So this is all of the things like the oral history of her life. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the official state record is largely correct, except it was all even worse than whatever was recorded in the public record, right? So it turns out both of her parents were raging alcoholics and her dad was just like chronically suicidal. Uh So that was just an aspect of their lives since they were, all of the kids were very little. Her mom was also a sex worker. She was a prostitute and she was in and out of jail constantly. Her children would lock her in the pantry to try to keep her from leaving the house. After her father died, the mother voluntarily sent her youngest three children to an orphanage where Dorothea and her brother were molested. Dorothea showed up to the orphanage so underweight, she was showing signs of starvation, and she and her brothers were teased also mercilessly for not being real orphans because their mom was still alive. Oh, damn. That's that's a rough one. I know. That's a rough one. And then listen to this. Yeah. When their mother died, relatives took the kids to the funeral service without telling them it was for their mom. And then one of Dorothea's sisters literally fainted in the lobby when they found out it was for their mother. And then afterwards, they just took the kids and dropped them back at the orphanage where they were teased for finally being real orphans now. (laughs) <laughs> like, so, okay well she she deserved to kill a one person or two you know like, like maybe hunt down some of these family members what like that's like that's what i'm saying about like when they were like we used to have it bad like yeah, back yeah. then like i right. mean that's uphill both ways to school i just can't even imagine man yeah damn yeah uh, that's uh okay so did she kill any of the people that deserved it or she just grew up and started killing random people that didn't deserve anything well you know i'm not going to answer your questions So Dorothea started her independent life at 16 years old, working on and off as a sex worker between and during her marriages. Between the mid-1940s and mid-1960s in that 20-year period, she was married three times to Fred McFall, who was a World War II veteran, to a merchant marine, Axel Burnt Johansson, and then to a man almost two decades, her junior, Jose Puente. She had two daughters in her first marriage who she gave away at birth, so kind of similar Mm -hmm. to her mother. She kind of was like, no, thank you. Yeah. And then throughout her life, she took on several aliases. These are just a few. So when she was 16, she told her first husband, she was married off at 16, that she was a 30-year-old widow named Sherry Al A. Risksiel. She later what? told she made that name up. <laughs> what was she going for? So she was playing with different identities and ethnicities back then. Yeah. Like even yeah. like there's a story I didn't include, but she even like at one point when she was 15, she told everyone she was Portuguese uh-huh. and a math genius. And uh-huh. she got in the newspaper at school being like, oh, this new foreign exchange student is Portuguese math genius. And then... 
they found out that she was lying about all of it and they went to her brother who she was living with and were like, you need to get her into counseling right now. Uh-huh. And then she was like, oh yeah, totally. And then she ran away to Portland. <laughs> she was like, absolutely not. I'm not doing it. Or she ran away to, I think, Olympia, Washington. Yeah. But like she started making up aliases really, really early. I mean, could you blame her? No. I mean, not for this. Yeah, that part, it makes the most sense ever. Yeah, so that's why, you know, we're talking about her, right? Yeah. She later... When she met her second husband, Axel Johansson, she told him he, she was half Egyptian and half Israeli and practicing Muslim. And her name was Taya Singoala Nayarada. Uh, none of those things. She also made up that name. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Are those even remotely close to names that would come from those ethnicities? I don't believe so. I didn't check. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't double check, but I also, I think everything she was doing, she was just like making up. I mean, it is funny to just make up a name entirely because you don't know anything about it, but you're also would just be telling people who also don't know anything about it. So there's well, like no checks and balances. We're in that zone. Yeah. So I, I don't really know, but, sure. I, but uh, we're definitely in the zone where like the, everything she's saying, she most of what she's saying, she's made. Was she up. ethically ambiguous? Like, no, looking? she's like, like, she just looks straight she's up. She's very, white. very white. She's like, I'm half Egyptian, like, half Israeli. Yeah. When people talk, I mean, her pictures, she's gorgeous. She looks like my, um, my great grandmother, uh-huh. you know, uh, on the white side. Oh yeah. On my white side. <laughs> 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 Carolyn. She's like, uh-huh. like that kind of, um, old movie star. She's, uh, she was Austrian. Very, she's very pretty, but mm-hmm. kind of like high cheekbones, like tiny nose, blue eyes, you know, yeah. coiffed hair, you know. Right. She also claimed to be completely fluid in Arabic, Greek, Spanish, and Swedish. Throughout all this time, she spent uh, time in jail for forging checks, and mm-hmm. then also she spent some time work in jail for working in a brothel. In the early 1960s, she was committed to a mental hospital. I think her second husband committed her, where she was diagnosed as a pathological liar. Mm. Then later, she was also diagnosed as having antisocial personality disorder, a.k.a. being a sociopath. All right, let's get to the meat of this, shall we? It's now (laughs) the early 1970s in Sacramento, Dorothea's third marriage to 20-something Jose Puente has crashed and burned with fighting and restraining orders and whatnot, all of that all around. But out of the ashes rose a version of Dorothea we haven't seen yet. Years later, at her capital murder sentencing hearing, psychiatrists would argue that this new Dorothea in the early 1970s was kind of like a Frankenstein forged from childhood trauma, right? From her early exposure to poverty and like witnessing the damage of alcoholism, from her understanding of how much uh, a kind word or a hot meal could help a desperate person and how truly vulnerable people could be sometimes. Like all of that mixed with her being a sociopath and a pathological liar, okay? Mm -hmm. So all that kind of like... Frankenstein together created this new Dorothy. Right. That's the soup on the uh, stove that's bubbling. Right. So after her third divorce, we saw the birth of Dorothea Puente, the community 
service worker. She became known in Sacramento as the woman who could get things done, get baskets of food together, collect clothes for the needy, put in hours of phone banking for fundraisers. She helped teen moms get back on their feet. And really later at, you know, for character witnesses and Uh trials, she had women coming in crying, talking about how Dorothea Puente changed their lives. Wow. You know, yeah, like crazy. Testi- yeah, like yeah. testifying to how how much she did for them yeah. back at this time. Yeah. You giveth and you taketh away, Dorothea. She fed needy kids at her own dinner table. She was even taking in young people off the street on her own dime and like having these informal sort of boarding situations. Her dime from what? How is she making money? I'm not sure, but she was she uh-huh. was doing it. You uh-huh. know, she was like kind of figuring out how to help it was more youth focused back then, I believe, but mm-hmm. she was figuring out how to help kids that were, you know, basically facing similar situations to sh- that she was when right. she was that age. Eventually, she got her hands on a giant white three-story mansion-looking spot in Sacramento where she started a mega boarding house where she could board up to 30 people at a time. And there... She started taking in the most desperate people in Sacramento, the formerly homeless, those with crushing substance abuse issues or mental health issues. And these were older folks. So a lot of them were elderly with nowhere else to go. And she helped all her tenants wade through the bureaucracy to get their maximum state benefits and social security payments. And she did all kinds of stuff like set up AA meetings in the lobby. It was really focused more on the adult population. Mm -hmm. This place was well known in the community, a total gem. It sported polished wood floors and elegant furniture that was donated by like different church organizations. (laughs) And the tenants were always like really polished right they were always clean and well dressed and shaven it was this like shining beacon you know in this yeah. in this neighborhood I, I can't say something real quick what <laughs> in our neighborhood we live next to a place like this and we always walk past it and everyone's always just outside and everyone's always cool and yesterday we walked by and one of the guys just ripped two gigantic farts i think he was farting at us i also. think he was he too. was facing I know. I just don't like. <laughs> I mean, if you're just gonna be out there and you're just gonna be like, I'm here. He was facing his butt was facing us, and he was like against the fence. And I think he saw us coming and farted. I him. think he did too. It and was it just, was like three farts. It was like we've been we've been living here for ten years, and that house is it's obvious what it is and who stays there, and it's always like you know, it's like a people, male boarding house kind of. Yeah, yeah, people come and go. It sounds exactly like this place. And it's always been just a pillar of the community. And then yesterday uh, we got farted at (laughs) two times, really big too, like comically big. And nobody else reacted. That's why I think it was at us because I think that if it was like general, people would have been like laughing or at least being like, what was that? And they were just like, dude, you're going to get kicked out. Why are you doing that? Like it felt very aggressive, but also I laughed because it was like, (laughs) it was hilarious. I mean, we were, you know, whatever. 10 feet away. 10 feet away. And there was like a fence and a bush between us. But it was just very, it was just a lot. Anyways, that's why I was (laughs) laughing when you were describing this place. (laughs) Uh, uh, So through her boarding house and her generous philanthropy, Uh Dorothea became a huge figure in the Mexican-American community in and around the Alkali Flats neighborhood 
and the greater Sacramento area. So in newspaper articles, I found mostly the Sacramento Bee, um, it was like praising her for her donations to members on the city council. Like they were like, oh, she was the top donor, mm-hmm. right? And all of those <laughs> newspaper articles referenced her as a doctor because, surprise, she said she was a doctor. Uh-huh. Or sometimes she said she was a World War II veteran and a nurse and also a proud Mexican-American woman. Uh-huh. And in fact, her nickname in the community was La Doctora. She was out there donating to scholarship funds, charities, the Mexican-American Youth Association, the Policemen's Association. She helped launch a a Spanish-language newspaper. She danced with California Governor Jerry Brown once at a charity gala. And she funded individuals, too. She was like a little Don Corleone. You could go to her for money. Right. If you needed money for like a wedding reception or Uh a quinceanera, Dorothy's got you. Right. It didn't matter to her. She told people like people would go to her and say, oh, your people are taking advantage of you. And she was like, it doesn't matter. I'm a very rich woman. She was like, I own the boarding house. You know, I own a house in Spain. I have money and I have no family. Like these are my family. Dorothea, you know, she said she had much more than she needed. She even hired a lawyer to draw up a will to painstakingly divide all of her assets among her informally adopted family in the Sacramento Mexican-American community. And it took years for the lawyers to realize like all of the assets that Dorothea listed (laughs) were all made up. They didn't exist. In fact, the whole thing was a delicately balanced house of urine-soaked toilet paper squares. And it started (laughs) sagging down bit by bit starting in the late 1970s. That's good writing, Muriel. Damn. Damn, that was great. I was trying to figure out um, what can I use besides cards. Yeah, that was hilarious. Urine-soaked toilet paper squares. And it starts sagging down instead of crumbling all at once. Yeah. Beautiful. Really good. In 1976, Dorothea... uh, enchanted her fourth and final husband, Pedro Angel Montalvo. They were married for one week. No. And, yes. Okay. Until Montalvo walked out after he realized Dorothea lied about being a doctor, <laughs> owning property in Mexico and Spain, and of course, yeah. being Mexican. <laughs> she... How after one week she let all that out? Well, he was like asking her questions, and he was just like, "None of this makes sense." <laughs> and you don't speak Spanish. <laughs> He's like, she didn't speak. Uh-huh. Um, like he, like he was talking to her, and it was like she spoke some Spanish, but like she didn't speak Mexican Spanish or like the type of Spanish that would make sense from like where she said she was from. God, so just as soon as they said it, like. It wasn't until she said, I do, but she said it in some weird way. And he was like, wait, how did you just pronounce those Yeah, like words? she's like, my family's from this area. And then it's like they're talking and like. It's, it's just funny that it came after the wedding, I guess. Like that it wouldn't come up with like on the first date or something. Yeah, you know? he was like, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> and then everyone figured out how she was living the glamorous philanthropic life. Yes. She wasn't a rich Mexican dowager. She was funding all of her 
philanthropy by pinching her tenants' social security checks. There we go. I knew it was something. The marginalized folks who often had no family or advocates living in her spotless boarding house who trusted and depended on Dorothea were her source of wealth. Yeah, there she we go. was okay. a demented Robin Hood, uh-huh. stealing from the poor and giving to the poor, <laughs> but skimming just enough to get a facelift along the way, <laughs> snag a dance with Governor Brown, and get hella compliments. <laughs> At the end of 1978, Dorothea was convicted of illegally cashing 34 benefit checks intended for her boarders, totaling thousands of dollars. Uh And perhaps because she was such a pillar of the community, she was quietly sentenced to just five years of probation. That's it. She didn't see uh, any jail time for that. And she was banned from running boarding houses. Okay. Of course, (laughs) right? But all right. So I guess and I I do have to just say it, Uh right? uh It does seem like a pretty solid scheme for someone who was supposedly new to elaborate schemes, right? Uh Like for right out of the gate. I just was like, whoa, that's crazy. Because from like her life up until this point was literally like making up names and gambling and getting trashed at bars and then her husband, like, she was married to this, like, merchant marine, a merchant, uh, what are they called? Merchant the sailor, sailors. the guy. Okay. He was, like, out there just for months at a time, like, on the ocean. And she would just be, like, working in a brothel and then, like, uh-huh. getting arrested and then floating around. She wasn't doing anything. And then she just came to Sacramento and, like, had this super high-profile life. She just created for herself. And then got into like high circles of society yeah and and like learn how to like navigate your like I, she doesn't even have i mean she dropped out of school at like 14 or something like that and she was able to like navigate all this bureaucracy and like you know i mean i thought it was pretty impressive yeah no she came up super hard i mean to me it's not that big of a leap to be like oh here's a person who's destitute and maybe an addict and they're on the street and they don't realize they can get social security so you know what i mean like to me the idea of stealing we both went to college and we could uh barely file for unemployment with covid hit like you and i were like (laughs) sitting there on the computer like couldn't even like we were like oh what does it mean when they ask that question (laughs) just saying it's like some of that stuff's kind of hard yeah (laughs) everything is very hard everything is impossible anyway so now she gets banned from doing all that right but it's the 70s right Mm -hmm. there's no internet not a lot of oversight or databases or whatever so dorothea is easily able to pivot and in the exact same city where she was this prominent social figure for years Uh with a locally famous boarding house, she just makes another transformation. Dorothea, in-home caregiver. She reinvented herself again. She started renting out the top floor of a sweet little blue and white Victorian house at 1426 F Street, the perfect nest for a little granny, almost like a blown-up doll's house. She stopped dyeing her hair and went gray. She developed a new creaky quiver in her voice. And even though she was just in her early 50s, she started telling folks she was a decade and a half older. She wore big, thick glasses she didn't need and little vintage (laughs) floral print dresses and started going by Dorothea 
Montalvo. Just a freaking evil little golden girl. And with no medical training at all, uh-huh. she started her new career nursing the elderly. Oh, God. Now, between 1981 and 1982, Dorothea decided to start being a huge asshole. <laughs> As far as we know, it started with two elderly women she was working for in the fall of 1981. The women kept landing back in the hospital sick until doctors were pretty sure Dorothea was over-medicating them, mm-hmm. a.k.a. poisoning them with medicine. Okay. In both cases, Dorothea was fired after social workers realized Dorothea was forging signatures on their social security checks and then cashing their benefit checks along with stealing their jewelry, cash, and then whatever else she could get away with. Only one woman of the two pressed charges and there wasn't an investigation into either of the incident until months later. Then, just a few weeks after being fired from those caregiving jobs in early 1982, Dorothea met 74-year-old Silver Fox Malcolm McKenzie at the Zebra Club, which was a bar in Sacramento. So they had a couple of drinks at the bar. Bartenders say, you know, they knew him. They knew Malcolm. He Mm. normally didn't get drunk and he had only had a couple of drinks. But regardless, he suddenly gets very ill at the bar and Dorothea offers to walk him home. She's roofing people. So there, Malcolm sat in his living room, drugged and completely paralyzed while he watched this little granny dig through his stuff, steal his cash, checks, and then literally pull the rings off his fingers while he sat there basically waiting to die. Damn. Malcolm didn't die Uh and reported Dorothea to the police and she did get in trouble, but police declined to arrest a harmless little granny who, by the way, was only 53 years old at the time. Because police declined to arrest her, Dorothea was able to drug and rob two more terrified elderly people before she was finally arrested in May of 1982. Why didn't they arrest her the first time? I don't understand. They just didn't arrest They they didn't investigate it. They didn't, for Malcolm or the very first. The first one. The the. Sorry, the names are escaping The little me. old ladies. Not the little old ladies. Malcolm. Malcolm. They just kind of were like, we're all investigated, but we're not going to arrest her. We're just going to look into it. it was and just he's this- like, she has my things. Yeah, so we're all investigated. Okay. Right? But they didn't arrest her. Okay. She's not dangerous. <laughs> Basically, was the idea. Maybe it's a mm-hmm. misunderstanding. Because mm-hmm. she had her own story about what happened. He gave, all, gave me all these things? Yeah, something like that. Anyway, Dorothea was arrested just days after her last robbery as she was making preparations to fly to Mexico. She literally had like plane tickets to Uh Mexico in her purse. As part of the plea deal, she pled guilty to four felonies involving forgery, grand theft, and, quote, administering a stupefying substance for the purpose of committing a felony. And she was sentenced to five years in prison. Dorothea ended up serving about three years of her five-year sentence and was paroled after getting two years knocked off for good behavior. And the whole time, she paid her rent on the blue and white Victorian with social security checks she was illegally receiving from prison. 
She was released with the stipulation that she could not run any more boarding houses, <laughs> care for the elderly in any capacity, or get her bony little fingers on anyone else's social security checks or any other benefit check from the government. In September 1985, she was released from prison and into the arms of her new fiancé, who had already set up shop in the little blue and white Victorian on F Street, where Dorothea was planning on setting up her brand new boarding house <laughs> under the name Dorothea Puente. <laughs> 77-year-old Everson Theodore Gilmouth was a widower in Sweet Home, Oregon, and he had two hobbies, woodworking and writing letters to women in prison. Everson had moved to Oregon to live with his sister Reba after his wife passed. After a few years in Oregon carving bears, his letters reached the right lady, and he met and fell in love with a jailbird named Dorothea Puente. His entire family was like, no, dude, <laughs> terrible, terrible idea. Yeah, yeah. But love was calling. And in August of 1985, he packed up his red pickup and his brand new trailer. And he drove to Sacramento to prepare the blue and white Victorian house for Dorothea's arrival. Red pickup. That's what they said that guy Burke got into. Reba watched her damn near 80 year old brother drive off like a fool in love and weeks went by, and she heard nothing from Everson. And it turned a bit odd and then scary. Eventually, Reba was freaking out. You know, her elderly brother was supposedly with an ex-con somewhere in Sacramento. No one could get a hold of him. There were no cell phones, email, or social media. He just vanished. And the only thing she could do short of driving to Sacramento was to call the police and do a welfare check. Sacramento police got to the house on F Street sometime in the fall of 1985, and they found Everson there, alive and well. He called Reba flustered, but extremely apologetic, apologizing over and over for not reaching out, promising to do a better job of, of keeping in contact. It, it was all just a big misunderstanding, and he was totally fine. After that phone call, Reba never heard from her brother again. Mm. Dorothea Puente was never convicted for Everson Gilmouth's murder. This is all we know uh -huh. so far. So I'm going to tell you what we know. Okay. Everson and Dorothea opened a joint checking account together in October 1985. Okay. So their money started going to the same place. And Dorothea wrote Everson's sister Reba a letter telling her that they were getting married on November 2nd. And then on November 2nd, Reba received a mailgram. So that's a, a note that doesn't have any handwriting on it, mm -hmm. right? So like a telegram from Palm Springs, allegedly from her brother Everson confirming the marriage. Around December 1985, Dorothea forged Everson's signature on the title of his trailer and his red pickup truck, transferring the titles to other people. She then had a handyman who was working for her at the time build a reinforced box roughly the size of a coffin for quote-unquote storage. The man built the box, and then the next day he showed up the box was nailed shut and weighed approximately 300 pounds. According to the handyman, Dorothea then asked him to help her transport the box to a storage facility. They drove the box 
with Dorothea giving step-by-step directions until they landed at the San Diego River about an hour away from Dorothea's place where Dorothea instructed the handyman to dump the box on the riverbank saying, actually, it's just trash, so let's just dump it here. In exchange for all of this, she gave the handyman, I believe, $800 and then the title to Everson's red pickup truck. Mm. In January 1986, just a few months later, the box was found by a fisherman open next to a tree near a dirt road off of Garden Highway in Sutter County, California, Northern California. Everson had just underwear and a t-shirt on. His body was wrapped in layers of black plastic bags like a mummy, then a layer of clear plastic bags, and finally a layer of bed sheets. And the box was filled with mothballs and blue toilet deodorizer tablets. His body showed no signs of trauma, but he'd clearly been dead for weeks. And the toxicology screen didn't yield any conclusive results. And at the time, Everson was registered as a John Doe. The same month Everson's body was found, someone tried to reroute his social security and pension checks to different Sacramento bank accounts. Eventually, a check totaling $2,500 in retroactive benefits was sent to Dorothea Puente's address just in July of that year, and it was cashed. Throughout this time, Dorothea continued to write Reba in Sweet Home, Oregon, little chatty letters about her life with Everson. So based on his autopsy, she wrote two letters to Reba after Everson was already dead. And then in April, Reba received the final and strangest letter, apparently from Everson's new girlfriend, a woman named Irene. So Irene, without any introduction, launched into it. Everson had had a stroke. He sold his truck and trailer, so those were gone. They were living somewhere in the desert. They had no phone, but they were happy. They went to church every Sunday. Um, Everson had lost a little weight. They planned on stopping by Oregon to visit on their way to Canada in the coming summer. And they just signed it, take care, Irene and Everson. Reba was baffled by the unsolicited letter. It was in Dorothea's handwriting with the same writing style. Clearly written by Dorothea Puente. And the letter was even postmarked from Sacramento. Oh, God. And that was was it. Uh She didn't get any more information about her brother until his body was identified in 1988. It's heartbreaking. So that's all we know. She was never convicted of his death, but that's what we know. Was she charged with it? Were Were they like, how do they know this stuff about this handyman and have it not be? She was charged with it. But not convicted. Yeah, and we'll get into that. Anyhow, by now, Dorothea Puente's boarding house was open for business. Federal probation officers monitoring her movements were charmed by her glass menagerie and Jesus paintings and fully convinced the down-and-out folks sleeping in her bedrooms and eating at her table were her colorful friends and nothing more. Not her tenants, for sure. (laughs) She wasn't running a boarding house. Uh, One of her first tenants was a surly, booze-soaked dude named John McCulley, and another was 78-year-old Betty Palmer. Dorothea Puente was never convicted of Benny Palmer's murder. This is just what we know. Betty showed up to Dorothea 
Puente's house in the fall of 1986. She was described in several documents, uh, court documents, as a solid weirdo. Nobody really knew a lot about her. She had been on SSI benefits since the 70s uh-huh. and diagnosed with several psychiatric disorders. She was on a lot of medications, antipsychotics, benzos, and painkillers. She would often check herself into hospitals for pelvic pain, demand pelvic exams, and then check herself out against medical advice. She bragged a lot about made-up love affairs she was having with different doctors. So it was suggested at Dorothea's trial that this might have been a sex thing for Betty Palmer called uh, erotomania or something like that. Anyway. pelvic exams was a sex thing? Might have been. Yeah. That's what it was. Well, sounds like it to me. (laughs) Betty Palmer disappeared within weeks of moving into Dorothea of moving into Dorothea's place. And by October 14th, Dorothea had a California ID card with her photo and Betty Palmer's name on it. Mm. In late 1986, Dorothea got her tenant, John McCulley, to dig a deep hole in the front yard. In December of that same year, Dorothea cashed Betty Palmer's social security checks totaling over $7,000 and continued to forge her name and cash her benefit checks well into 1988. In 1988, Betty Palmer's body was found in that same hole in the front yard without her head, hands, and lower legs buried just under a little Catholic shrine. Damn. The same month, Dorothea (sighs) made herself a fake ID Using Betty Palmer's name, she took on another client, 78-year-old Leona Carpenter. Leona Carpenter was another aging Sacramento barfly. She had been addicted to booze, codeine, and fluorazepam for for years. In September 1986, an apparent suicide attempt, Leona overdosed on fluorazepam, taking a month's worth of pills in a single go and fell into a coma. And when she came to in October, her old friend of 29 years, Dorothea Puente, was at her bedside with a notary, like a notary public, to officially have Leona sign over power of attorney to Dorothea. On October 31st, Dorothea cashed Leona Carpenter's SSI checks totaling more than $7,000. When Leona was released from the hospital, Dorothea moved her into the blue and white Victorian on F Street. She lived there for a few days before being rushed back to the hospital for another fluorazepam overdose. She was discharged in late February 1987, but was so sick, she just laid on the upstairs couch and moaned for pills. And a few weeks later, she disappeared. Dorothea Puente told another tenant Leona's daughter had taken her home. But when the daughter showed up to pick up her mother, Dorothea told her Leona had been shipped off to a nursing home. Mm -hmm. Two months later, Dorothea hired a plumber to dig a large hole near some sewer lines at the back of the yard to assess some plumbing issues. The hole was left open overnight and then in November 1988, a couple years later, Leona Carpenter's body was found buried in that hole in the back of the yard. Her leg bone and sneaker was the first evidence discovered on the property November 11th, 1988. Jesus. She's a certified serial killer. She's out here killing everybody. By the spring of 1987, 
Dorothea had taken possession of the downstairs of the blue and white Victorian and opened up several more bedrooms to tenants. It was a far cry from her glory days of the ostentatious 30-room mansion of the late 70s, just four rooms downstairs and a couple spares on the top floor where she lived. But it was homey, charming, and most importantly, very low profile. She only took people with crippling alcoholism issues, the elderly, and then people with mental health issues. And while she maintained she wasn't a board and care facility, she you know didn't provide those services officially and she wasn't licensed, she hinted around that she was entirely qualified to run a board and care style facility, considering she was what she called a, quote, MD doctor. And she would do things like manage her tenants' medical appointments and medications and give them cab fare to go to appointments and stuff. But she provided meals and laundry facilities. And she also used her considerable mega mind when it came to manipulating the system to set up the maximum entitlement benefits for her tenants. For instance, like At the time, they would receive more food stamp assistance if they weren't living in a room and board facility. So she helped them register as living as like independently in an apartment, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. And then for a lot of her tenants, she arranged to either be a signer, representative payee or like whatever on their government checks. And she also made it a house rule that no one in the house was ever allowed to check the mailbox except for Dorothea herself. So for most of her tenants, you know, for all of her tenants, she would hand out the mail often that she just felt like giving. And as for the money for most of the tenants, they would just get an allowance. She would cash their checks as their payee give them an allowance, and then use the rest, presumably, for their room and board. Dorothea also started stockpiling sedative medication. So this is a really complicated aspect of the case I'm not going to like get super into mm-hmm. because like all of the people who died had – it's debatable, but they've had like some traces of different sort of substances in their bodies – what they do know is like there's this one controversial drug, flurazepam. It's like a hypnotic sedative that's used as a sleep aid. It's not super strong. It's not like a roofie, but it is something that makes you sleepy. Uh-huh. Um, it is very hard to overdose on. But between ni- October 1985 and September 1988, Dorothea filled 35 prescriptions for a month's su- supply of the drug including a four-month stint where she was filling multiple prescriptions each month. So Mm -hmm. she was just like stockpiling it. And then on top of that, you know, she's the one who's kind of helping people manage their prescriptions, going to the doctor with them. And most of the people who lived at the boarding house were also on that same drug. So there's a lot of that drug in the house. All right. So moving on, 62-year-old James Gallup moved into Dorothea's boarding house February 1987. Dorothea was not... Convicted of his murder. This is all we know about his stay in the house. James was like his fellow tenants. He was an alcoholic and a heavy smoker. At least two packs a day. He also had a rat's nest of health problems. He had heart disease. He had recently had a heart attack. 
it looked like he might have colon cancer and he had this rare condition. He had an inoperable benign tumor in his brain that kind of popped out his right eye and numbed his face. And he was on all kinds of medication, pain meds for the surgeries, chemotherapy to try and shrink the tumor. And Dorothea managed all of his medications. She also forged his signature and cashed thousands of James Gallup's benefits checks. In June, Dorothea and James had an argument. James was adamant he did not want Dorothea to be the payee for his social security checks. July 20th, some testing indicated James Gallup did in fact have colon cancer and he discussed the results with his doctor. They scheduled more testing and then no one ever heard from James Gallup again. Dorothea told his medical team that James Gallup had moved to Los Angeles indefinitely. He had just disappeared. She told Gallup's friends that James had just left in the middle of the night without saying anything and she doesn't know where he was. And Dorothea told her own friends that James Gallup had died at her house and been cremated because he had no family. Mm. So she just did him a favor and cremated him. In November 1988, James Gallup was found buried under a decorative gazebo in Dorothea's backyard. And again, she was never convicted of his murder. What is going on? You're just like, was it? How? (laughs) In the fall? Did other people get convicted? Is she framing people for these murders? We're going to get there, man. The fall of 1987 brought Dorothea to church, specifically to St. Paul's, where she had heard Peggy Nickerson worked as a street counselor at the senior center as an advocate for the elderly homeless population in Sacramento. Oh, so she went right to the source and she was like, what, you know, a bunch of elderly homeless people, they can stay in my house. Dorothea, the 58-year-old ex-convict, made a convincing 70-something-year-old white-haired grandma with a soft spot for those down on their luck. (laughs) Peggy Nickerson toured the sweet, tidy, blue and white Victorian on F Street, smelled the delicious food cooking, saw the healthy veggie garden and the cute knickknacks covering the shelves and was impressed. It seemed like a secret haven in a sea of dingy, depressing, underfunded boarding houses. Dorothea was a saint. From the fall of 1987 to August 1988, Peggy Nickerson placed 19 homeless seniors in Dorothea Pointier's boarding house. Right around the same time, Dorothea charmed Peggy. She started getting her yard in order. Back then in Sacramento, there was this program where you could hire inmates from a minimum security halfway house in Sacramento for $20 a day to do manual labor. The guys were all just waiting on their parole. So they'd show up completely unsupervised, and Dorothea found they really didn't ask any questions. So starting in the fall of 1987, Dorothea hired 11 inmates to work on her yard, a team of guys. And over the months, she had the men buy and transport bags of ready-mix cement, carpeting, and plastic 
ground covers, but most importantly, she would have them either dig deep holes or trenches around the yard. She claimed were for burying garbage or looking for sewer pipes. Mm -hmm. Often the holes would remain open for weeks. Sometimes they were directed to fill them back in. Sometimes they were instructed to build structures over the filled holes like sheds or gazebos. Or sometimes they would be told to pour concrete slabs over parts of the yard to keep the weeds off. Peggy Nickerson placed her first client at Dorothea's boarding house on October 2nd, 1987. 61-year-old Vera Faye Martin was a chronic alcoholic, 100 pounds soaking wet with a long track record of emergency room visits from either intoxication or injuries from street violence. Dorothea was never convicted of Vera Faye Martin's murder. We just know within three days of being placed in Dorothea's home, Dorothea started forging Vera's signature and cashing in her SSI checks. Vera Faye Martin failed to call her daughter on her birthday on October 19th. This marks the last time anyone clocked her mm. as missing. missing. Yeah. Over time, Dorothea would steal over $7,000 of Vera's government benefits, and no one would see her alive after moving into Dorothea's boarding house. Her body was found buried under a metal shed in Dorothea's backyard in November 1988. R.I.P., so many RIPs. So bless her heart, Peggy Nickerson was on a tear and placed her next client with Dorothea just two weeks later on October 21st. 65-year-old Dorothy Miller was another rail-thin Sacramento barfly. She had come to Peggy Nickerson for help after she got shop off, shoplifting two packs of cigarettes. Dorothy was in rough shape. She had cirrhosis of the liver from drinking Issues with her heart and lungs from smoking. She had seizures and some mental problems, including like very extreme paranoia. But she did have a nice military pension in addition to her government benefits checks. And Dorothea kept Dorothy Miller locked upstairs in the back bedroom. She wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. Some of the tenants remembered that Dorothy Miller escaped a few times and snuck downstairs, but she didn't really talk to anybody. She seemed really dirty and skittish. And if anybody tried to talk to her or saw her, she would just like run back upstairs. Mm-hmm. In Dorothy Miller's case, Dorothy actually got her landlord to act as Dorothy Miller's payee. So all of her pension and government benefit checks actually went directly to Dorothea's landlord in lieu of Dorothea paying rent. And a couple weeks after moving in, Dorothy Miller disappeared. Dorothea told tenants Dorothy Miller got caught shoplifting and, quote, she couldn't put up with her no more and she throwed her out. Dorothea told her landlord she sent Dorothy Miller to a rehab center for alcoholism, but no worries, they could still keep collecting the checks. <laughs> In early November, a couple weeks after Miller vanished, Dorothea had one of her inmate workers clean the back bedroom where Dorothy Miller had been sleeping. The inmate said the carpet was filthy, covered in something like vomit. November 20th, a professional carpet cleaner Dorothea hired said he came in the back bedroom to find a horrible smelling pile of green slime on the carpet. And Dorothea mentioned to him that that particular bedroom was haunted because people kept dying back there. That November, 
Dorothea also instructed one of the inmate workers to dig a large hole between the gazebo and the metal shed for trash. And when he came back, he said the hole was filled and covered with cement. In November 1988, Dorothy Miller's body was found in that location, buried under a slab of concrete. Dorothea used Dorothy Miller's benefits checks and pension checks to pay her rent for that entire year through 1988, collecting over $11,000 in benefits. What's she doing with all this money? Is she just like taking off the granny wig and going out and partying? Like, what do you, you know what I mean? What do you do with the money? Well, we'll kind of get into this. Uh huh. She's running the boarding house and she's feeding everyone and clothing them and like paying for it. Uh huh. In the grand scheme of things, it's like a normal salary what she's making. Right. And I guess that's always a thing. Like, you know, even when the motive is money, you're not really doing it for the money. You're really doing it because you love stealing and murdering people. Well, and you know, what's crazy is that she doesn't need to kill them to keep collecting their checks. Yeah. Like they just, no, she's just, she just loves you, you. Once you're there, you're just in it for the love of the game. But remember she was never convicted of these things. So I'm she's just... totally innocent. <laughs> the end. And with all this going on, you'd think, <laughs> Oh man. Right. Like, Hold on, the garbage trucks guys were pausing for a second. And with all this going on, you'd think, oh man, like how is no one seeing a pattern here? <laughs> like what about Dorothea's parole officer? Did someone alert them to the possibility of her running another boarding house? Mm-hmm. Or like handling other people's benefit checks and violating her parole? Or what about the Sacramento Social Security office? Like, Maybe someone got mad at Dorothea for jacking their benefits and reported her. Well, yes. You know what? If you thought, man, did somebody see a pattern and report her? You'd be correct. (laughs) All of these things happened in November of 1987 while Dorothea was setting up a pipeline with the street counselor for the senior center at St. Paul's and hiring a team of prison inmates to dig holes and trenches in her backyard. So while she was setting this whole thing up, mm-hmm. there was a huge like citywide memo going out about her, complaining mm-hmm. about her and complaints yeah. being filed about her. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And what about the lady from church who like keeps sending all these people there and then they die? What do you mean? She should be like, Hey, what's up with this? what's going on she thinks everything's great she's on she's got no hackles up she's used to the people she's helping dying immediately or disappearing forever right away as of now it's normal she's calling and saying what happened to this person and she's saying oh her daughter took her home yeah she says okay that sounds great also remember like there is this thing going on where there at the time there were street counselors who were not licensed social workers Mm -hmm. and those are just kind of advocates who work with people in different organizations. So they aren't caseworkers. So there's no, they're not volunteers, but they aren't um, like, they're not like caseworkers. So there's no, like there's not the same type of protocol, Mm -hmm. right? Where you would go into a welfare check. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. 
According to a report written by Michael Conan of the Sacramento County Office of Patients' Rights and released to the Sacramento Bee on Thursday, January 19th, 1989, in the fall of 1987, a staff psychologist for the Department of Corrections Parole Outpatient Clinic sent out a memo. Dr. Angela Curial participated in Dorothea Puente's evaluations in 1985, just prior to her being released from prison, okay? So in these evaluations, she was deemed disturbed, dangerous, and possibly schizophrenic. They were saying, we believe she could offend again. Like, that was her evaluation. Uh Uh-huh. Now, two years later, in the fall of 1987, when Dorothea was kind of really at the height of what she was up to, getting all of her plans in order, right, to create this boarding house of death, Mm -hmm. Dr. Curiel contacted the Social Security Administration in Sacramento, the Federal Probation Office, Sacramento Police, state parole authorities, and the Sacramento Valley Community Correctional Services with a warning, a letter. Dr. Curiel wrote that it had come to her attention that Dorothea Puente, of the writing of her letter, was managing the government benefit checks of at least 11 people listed at living at her home on F Street. Dr. Curiel added that Dorothea was an expert at obtaining social security benefits for her residents in the past and that the common denominator in all of her prior victims from 1978 was her their social security income and that she had clearly escalated to more violent crimes in 1981 and 1982. And she showed a pattern of kind of like increasing this sort of like violence towards her victims and that they should all be on high alert. It seemed clear to Curiel that Dorothea was once again running a similar scam, a boarding house, and in violation of her parole. And she had even been in contact with someone who had been consistently filing complaints against Dorothea, an old cellmate of hers from her prison days, a woman named Brenda Trujillo. All right, so... Brenda Trujillo features heavily as a witness in Dorothea Puente's trial, and she was a pretty controversial witness. She's a wild bird, okay? Mm -hmm. She got caught in lies. She had a pretty substantial heroin addiction, and she really can't remember anything. Like, she crosses (laughs) dates. She can't remember people's names. Uh She's she's not a great witness. Uh But she says stuff, and can remember stuff at the right points and times that kind of would be impossible for her to make up that come out at different times in trial that really looked bad for old Dorothea. Uh So there are some things that really kind of show a bad side of Dorothea and helped the prosecution at times, right? Mm -hmm. So... Brenda claimed that in 1987, she was paroled out to Dorothea's house and Dorothea helped her set up her monthly, you know, government benefit checks. But when Brenda didn't want to designate Dorothea as her payee, 
Dorothea drugged her, set her up like she had relapsed on heroin, and then called her parole officer. So Brenda's parole was revoked. She was sent to prison, and Dorothea collected a large lump sum in her government benefits checks and several other checks intended for Brenda Trujillo that totaled around $3,500. And those payments did go through, were sent to Dorothea Puente's house, and they were cashed. So Mm -hmm. that did happen. Dr. Curiel included this story in her 1987 letter saying like, look, she's definitely stealing people's checks. And then in addition to that, in in November 1987, when all this stuff was going down, Brenda Trujillo filed a complaint against Dorothea Puente with the Social Security office in Sacramento. No one responded or followed up to Dr. Curiel's letter at all from any of those institutions. And... Brenda Trujillo's claims of fraud were completely unanswered and there was no investigation launched into it. So out of those like five or six institutions that got that letter, no one looked into it whatsoever. The parole board, no one. Hmm. Also, our last little piece of Brenda before we leave her for the day. Later in 1988, months before the bodies were found on in Dorothea Puente's yard and before Dorothea's alleged final two victims were killed, Brenda Trujillo was out on parole once again and got picked up on suspicion for a completely unrelated homicide and brought into the station for questioning. And she was pissed at Dorothea, I think for the whole drugging her and stealing her checks thing. Mm. And she literally told police like while they're questioning her, well, Dorothea Puente is out there killing people up at her house <laughs> and the place is full of dead bodies and no one's doing anything about that. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. And police just thought she was a crank. Sure. And nobody looked into and it. That so it. that they literally were getting people saying she's she's killing people. Yeah. All right. So far, for those counting, we have a lady. She's been convicting of running a mass scheme, stealing dozens of people's government benefit checks. Uh, In a totally different incident, she's been convicted of drugging and robbing the elderly. According to the terms of her parole, she's not allowed to run a boarding house, care for the elderly, or handle anyone's government checks. She is running a boarding house, (laughs) caring for the elderly, handling their benefits checks. She's being monitored by by federal parole officers. She's being put on blast to every major agency in Sacramento related to social work and law enforcement. She has officially been reported to the Social Security Office for fraud and the police for having a house full of dead bodies. Uh, At least six people have gone missing while in her care. She is the payee on an absurd amount of benefits checks, some of which belong to people no longer living at her home. She has a team of convicts digging and filling holes and trenches in her yard in broad daylight like it's a hobby. And yet, from this point in the story... There will be many more months, more warnings, more deaths, more holes, more checks, more absurd letters, and more second chances than you could possibly imagine. Folks cannot get enough of this unlicensed boarding house (laughs) everyone keeps warning them about. Dorothea's spot is the place to board vulnerable people in Sacramento. Tune in next episode for a bunch of things you won't believe 
And then that time someone actually called the goddamn police. Thank you so much for listening. Miro did all the writing, the researching. She hosted the whole damn thing. Uh, and look, part two, it might be available for you now. Uh, it's definitely coming out. Part two and three is coming out on for free, you know, on, in the weeks to come. But it also might um, already be up for uh, early access on Patreon or Spotify exclusive. So check those because we don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's really, it's really a mystery. Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. (laughs) Bye, we love you.